World Press Freedom Day today and while we're celebrating one of the most important democratic values, we're also facing the harsh truth that press freedom is in demise in a number of European countries. But what has gone so wrong that we witness journalists being murdered for simply doing their job, or that journalists are under surveillance by national services, or that we see media follow the rhetoric of politicians and have stopped doing what journalism is supposed to be doing, hold into account those in power for their wrongdoings. So what can we do to turn the tide on the worsening climate for press freedom? Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week we will be focusing on the reasons press freedom is in danger, who are the countries that are worrying the most organizations like the International Press Institute, a global network of editors, media executives and leading journalists whose mission is to defend media freedom and support independent journalism wherever they are threatened and the European Centre for Press and Media Freedom, a non-profit organization that operates on the basis of the European Charter on Freedom of the Press and the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. Its mission is to promote, preserve and defend media freedom by monitoring violations, providing practical support and engaging diverse stakeholders across Europe. So we got in touch with both institutions and we asked what are the factors leading to a deteriorating press freedom in a number of European countries? Probably the first thing is that the the, the financial decimation of the news sector, we've seen how in the last two decades it's been severely weakened by by the loss of of the revenue, primarily the advertising revenue. And um, as a consequence, if you don't have proper proper income, you, you you can't pay for quality journalism and you also you lose your the political independence um, of journalism. Oliver Manekarli is head of Europe Advocacy and Programs at International Press Institute. The tech companies are obviously largely responsible for this because they've been able to um, redirect the advertising that that the media traditionally depended upon to be able to to function and, and, and be be viable. That has created a vacuum, if you like, for other actors and I'm thinking of disinformation actors to to fill. Uh, disinformation is nothing new. Disinformation has been around since, you know, for as long as journalism has been around. But the sort of financial weakening of media has created a, a space in which, you know, well-funded dif- disinformation actors can um, cause, cause serious uh, problems in the public sphere. Although the situation differs from country to country, media in different countries seem to deal with similar problems, according to Lawrence Hutting, Senior Advocacy Officer at the European Centre for Press and Media Freedom. The specifics are a little bit different from one country to the next, um, but painting in in broad strokes, I think there's a number of interrelated factors that are valid uh, pretty much, much across the region. Um, The first one of those is a rise in populist and divisive politics um, and the way that these politicians have been engaging with the media. In this context, I'm thinking, of course, first and foremost of the media capture by uh, Viktor Orban and other illiberal politicians. Um, In addition to market disruption, um, also creating divisions between pro-government reporters and then uh, the others, so to say, is part and parcel of of the tactics. Um, Also outside these liberal contexts, though, uh, populism has had an impact. Um, Looking, for example, at Germany, 
Um, during the pandemic, uh, conspiracy theorists uh, very much portrayed the media as, as their enemy. And we saw a lot of physical and verbal aggression against reporters, uh, for instance, during Querdenken uh, demonstrations. So populism, on the one hand, uh, it erodes independence and pluralism, and it also creates and contributes to a more dangerous working environment for journalists. Um, I think the second broadly valid factor is a declining trust in the media in general. Um, this follows the rise of social media and, and the spread of fake news and disinformation online. And of course, this is also something that tends to be worse in highly polarized societies. The third factor, I would say, is abuse of law and litigation. Um, in itself, nothing new under the sun here, but what we are seeing um, in, in recent years is a particular vigor and enthusiasm from certain private and public actors uh, to initiate uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation, also known as SLAPs, and uh, other abusive litigation that aims to silence uh, critical investigative reporting in the public interest. The final factor, I think, um, comes with the, 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 the digital age, so to say. Um, on the one hand, that's, uh, that translates in, in online harassment, um, which disproportionately affects uh, women journalists. Uh, this is something, of course, not limited to, to, to journalism itself and, and part of a broader problem. Media and journalism have always been connected to politics, but the trend of oligarchs and business people with ties to governments acquiring media outlets has been proved a serious threat to independent journalism. But which countries are the ones that are worrying the most press freedom advocates and why? Poland and Hungary are the champions of um, uh, the media freedom crisis, if you like. They're the ones that have got all of the attention over recent years, because, of course, that ties in with the rule of law crisis and the actions taken by the European Commission, but also because they are um, perhaps the models of this process of media capture that we've witnessed. Media capture is something that was, I think, you know, was, was invented in the Kremlin, if you like. It was exported to other countries. In Turkey, you, you, see, you see that's also been perfected there. But essentially, in Hungary, it's the use um, of... The use and the abuse of the political powers of government to take over and control the media message. And that might be, you know, putting, put, turning the public broadcaster into a propaganda machine by putting pro-government um, uh, editors and journalists in, in, in place. It might be the um, uh, similarly placing uh, pro-government people into the regulators, the media regulators or the competition regulators. It's the abuse of um, public advertising to reward your, your allies and your friends in the media and therefore to also punish critical journalism. And most importantly, it's about um, probably the biggest driving factor is the creation of, uh, of a group of oligarchs around the governing party that... Um, are used to buy up mainstream media um, and often you that they are rewarded not through you know direct funding through to the media but often they're rewarded through other other contracts in other industries such as energy or the construction or or, or, or things like this and we've seen this you know media capture has been a real problem you know perfected in Hungary 
copied in Poland and there are various levels of it in the Czech Republic, in Slovakia, in Bulgaria, in Romania. Um, for Hungary, the situation is now so dire that we're actually seeing fewer um, individual incidents of concern uh, compared with previous years. I'm thinking, for example, um, major takeovers by oligarchs close to the government, um, the silencing of Club Radio through politicized decision making by a regulator that's politically controlled and, and so on. We're seeing somewhat less of this recently, not because things are improving, but because Fidesz already controls the media market to a point where such interventions are rarely necessary anymore, right? So that's it's a very, very problematic situation. Um, within the EU, I also want to highlight Greece as a country of concern. Um, it's got a highly polarized landscape, um, ongoing problems, long-standing problems with the safety of journalists, legal threats, uh, surveillance, and, and economic pressures and manipulations. Um, there's been some positive steps recently, for example, the establishment of a task force on journalist safety. But these actions taken are not enough. Greece was shocked by the assassination of Georgios Karaivais two years ago, in April 2021. And only this past Friday, 28th of April, the suspects for, the, for his assassination were arrested. All this after the Minister of Justice, Konstantinos Tsiaras, told the media that he had to speed up the investigation of the case. Now, his statement was perceived with criticism by the independent media in the country that are wondering why the government didn't do enough to resolve the case in the first place. And what are the incentives behind the minister's decision to speed up the process? But the case of Georgios Karaivas isn't the only one that remained unresolved for years. And so this kind of failure really tarnishes the reputation of the authorities responsible, which in my view somewhat overshadows the, the limited progress we've been seeing on, on some fronts. Um, there's no time to mention all the impunity cases of murders of journalists, but I, I do also want to raise Daphne Caruana Galicia and Jan Kuczek here, of course. Both of them murdered in EU member states in recent years, and in neither case full justice or accountability has been achieved at this point. Um, then when it comes to the candidate countries, uh, there's of course Ukraine. Uh, reporting on the war is dangerous, and, and then there's the conflicts, human and economic cost as well, and, and everything that that entails for the future of the media. Um, Turkey. Um, traditionally a, a bad performer when it comes to respecting press freedom for a good while now. And, and unfortunately, that remains the case. A lot of heavy-handed uh, legal and regulatory interventions that undermine independent reporting. And Lawrence, you have this really helpful tool, the Mapping Media Freedom Tool, which reports media violations in European countries and beyond. Maybe you can explain to us what does this tool do exactly and who can use it? Absolutely. Um, so Mapping Media Freedom, it's a database and a map. Essentially, it's accessible indeed through our own website as well as through mappingmediafreedom.org. And it compiles uh, violations of press freedom across Europe. Um, anyone really can browse the documented attacks and there's some analytical tools built in as well through something called the Alert Explorer. Um, and so, yeah, it's really a tool for, for policymakers, researchers, journalists, advocates, um, anyone with an interest in, in media freedom. Um, the database is the largest of its kind in Europe. 
last year alone, we documented 868 violations. Um, they're divided into five types, uh, physical, verbal attacks, attacks to property, legal and, and censorship. Um, anyone can report a violation, um, can just browse to the website and use the reported form. Um, besides these direct reports that we receive, data is also collected through media and social media monitoring and also through the, the different partners' networks. Um, this, this project is uh, co-run by ECPMF together with the European Federation of Journalists and the International Press Institute as part of the Media Freedom Rapid Response. Um, so, of course, before anything is published, it, it's rigorously verified uh, by, by the monitoring partners. And what is showing the data that you've collected so far? Well, it, it shows essentially the, the issue around safety, around capture, around uh, legal attacks and so on. Um, for, for detailed, both qualitative and quantitative analysis, um, I, I'd refer you to the monitoring reports that we publish uh, every six months. Um, and they also always look at specific sort of either upcoming issues or issues of, of particular concern in the, the previous reporting period. Um, the report we published most recently, for example, looked at abusive lawsuits, um, online at the rise in online attacks, um, the rise in attacks on journalists who cover environmental issues and surveillance as specific currently uh, sort of key issues or, or hot topics in our monitoring. You're listening to Your Active's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech, agri-food and health podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop a line at podcast at youractive.com. So what can be done to turn the tide on the worsening climate for press freedom? First of all, the public... <laughs> The public needs to learn to value journalism. It needs to welcome news and ideas that, 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 that challenge them rather, rather than always seeking out news and ideas that simply reinforces you know, your, your personal views or your personal prejudices. So really, there has to be a strong, not just media literacy campaign, but a sort of public campaign for the value, recognise the value of journalism. And that, that kind of happened. To some level, that happened under COVID. There was a sudden sort of surge of interest in the public, desperate to find news that was reliable. So much more interested in public service journalism. Many more uh, members of the public started paying, uh, you know, signing up to the paywalls on on traditional media that they felt was going to be more more reliable. So this, you know, this is absolutely essential. It starts in, in, in the end, it starts and finishes with the public. The public isn't prepared to pay for journalism, isn't prepared, isn't going to demand quality journalism, then quality journalism will not, not you know, will, will, will not survive. Um, obviously, politicians, I mean, they play a key role in, um, if you like, in setting the, setting the tone or the standards of political discourse. So there has to be an end to the sort of targeting, the, the, the public targeting of, of journalists uh, by the politicians. Um, journalists must be allowed to operate, you know, free of political pressure. 
I think some of these problems um, need policy and legislative change, right? Either at the national or at the regional level or both. Um, for example, in relation to abusive litigation, um, if you want to counter slaps, that requires the introduction of safeguards in codes of civil procedure and the development of support measures for journalists and, and activists who are targeted by, by these kinds of uh, abusive uh, litigation tactics. Uh, when it comes to media capture, for example, there's a need to, to tackle problematic market concentration and, and regulatory capture, of course, linked to, to a broader rule of law problem as well. Um, for some topics, it's not so much about policy and legislative innovation as much as it is about putting into practice existing international standards. Um, safety of journalists specifically, um, there's very solid recommendations from the UN, from the Council of Europe and from the European Commission, but implementation here is lagging behind. So it's about improving that implementation and supporting and developing processes that, that can, can, can lead to, to better application of, of those existing mechanisms and measures. I think um, what's needed, well, it's more investment in independent investigative reporting, more investment in local media, um, support for journalists so that they can have uh, trainings on digital security, access to legal support, and so on and so forth. Journalists have to be protected. The collaboration between journalists, unions, civil society, and state actors is a must. So government, the police, and the courts have to take seriously threats reported by journalists. And they also need to do much more to protect journalists from trolling online, from hate speech and all, all of these things. So the platforms should be doing a lot more. The police should be um, ready to take seriously um, threats against journalists to, sort of, to investigate them and, if necessary, to take, take action. Um, the courts also need to protect journalists from things like vexatious lawsuits. So we've seen, we, we talk about this, this we, we've given the label slaps. So this is, you know, a term that's given to vexatious law, lawsuits conducted by the rich and powerful against primarily investigative journalists, but not only journalists, so in order to silence them in, in the law courts. Some countries seem to be doing better than others, but what practices are flourishing in these countries and what can other countries that struggle with press freedom learn from them? Mechanisms that involve these different stakeholders are being established in, in many countries. Um, at the forefront of this uh, has been the Netherlands, a mechanism there, it's called Pax Veilig. And because in the Netherlands, there's also a lot of political will to, to tackle journalist safety as a you know, a, a key issue in, in a democratic society. This collaboration in practice, we're seeing a lot of like con concrete progress being generated by it, right? Even if, of course, there's always, as always, points, points for improvement. Um, then on the other hand, um, for example, in Serbia, um, there's mechanisms that on paper are not all that different from the ones that exist in the Netherlands. But despite efforts and, and commitments by journalists and some of the other actors involved in practice, we're seeing that attacks and smear campaigns and harassment remain really prevalent and, and, and very problematic in the country. Um, what plays an important role in this is politicians who demonize critical journalists and, and who create and feed this, this hostile environment. And so you've got, you know, solutions to the problem that, that on paper look very similar, but, but without political will really um, 
create vastly different different outcomes. While this commission has been the most active when it comes to combating the deterioration of press freedom, its actions aren't enough. So, Oliver, what else can the European Commission do to secure press freedom? This current commission has never been more active on um, trying to push through you know, recommendations or regulation, through the rights of journalists or, or to improve media freedom. We've never seen a more active uh, commission that you know it all kind of falls under the democracy action plan and there are you know there, there, there are many elements to it but I guess the key elements to it would be the uh, the rule of law reporting process so this is an annual reporting process uh, about the, about the state of the rule of law in member states but really important in that is that media freedom is one of the sorts of key elements that are that, that are studied and we, you know, as journalist organisations and many civil society organisations get a chance to contribute to that report, which is, you know, drafted by the Commission with recommendations for um, uh, for, for states to take to improve the, the, the rule of law in, the, in, in their country. So that's one mechanism. Um, two and a half years ago, the Commission published the safety recommendations, which outlines all sorts of details about how member states can improve uh, can take actions to improve the safety of journalists. This is not enforceable, but it's a recommendation which, in theory, member states are to report on and to take action on. So again, it's another mechanism to measure the commitment of of politicians beyond beyond the rhetoric, at, at least at the national level. So that is helpful. And then the two key bits of legislation that are currently going through the Parliament and the Council, of course, the well, I mentioned the anti the the, the, the problem with slap. So there's the anti-slap directive. That is going through that would hopefully improve the ability of courts to dismiss vexatious lawsuits and to protect journalists for, from this, you know, the, the, the abuse of the courts by the rich and powerful. And then perhaps most, I won't say controversially, but certainly it's very sort of uh, the details of it are, are subject to, you know, great, great. Uh, fighting and, and, and arguments about how it is you create a, an effective media freedom act, and this is great. You know, I mean, two two years ago when it was first announced, we had we had no expectation that this was going to take place. So the fact that it's in the commission has had the courage to put this forward, and an attempt to you know meet its ambition with some concrete concrete tools this is what you know we are in the middle of advocating around that. We certainly hope that we can we will emerge with a media freedom act that can actually you know will give the power to to the eu to intervene where media freedom is in a, is, is in real crisis public discourse is a key when it comes to raising awareness about the state of press freedom around the globe and bringing these topics in the spotlight is what could change the situation this is an opportunity for us to, you know, to, to engage with the public and to sort of promote the, the, the importance of, of journalism. You may not be very interested in journalism, but you may be interested in, in many other rights. And one of the great things about journalism is that it's it's essential for also, it's an, it's an enabling right. It's, so it's an essential for, for also protecting a broad range of, of all the other human rights that we, that, that we take for granted. For me, is the central role of independent and diverse media in democratic participation and in safeguarding the rule of law. Um, free media is what holds those in power to account. It's what enables people to get informed and, and to have their own voices heard. 
and it supports and, and generates public debate on matters that are in everyone's interest. So really, it's protecting the press means protecting our human rights, protecting our democracy, protecting our rule of law. Thank you very much. I am Evikiori, and this was your active Spill the Byline podcast. Visit your active for the latest news, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by myself, and I want to thank our executive producer, Malte Kettelsen. Thank you for listening, and until next week.